This is Grant Taff. I was called coach for most of my life, but I always thought of myself as a teacher, as a teacher. My prayer is that you will learn something here that inspires you to be a positive influence at work, at home, and in your community. Community. May God bless each of you as you listen. You listen. Coach Grant Taff is a college football legend. After a 54-year coaching career that culminated with his historic tenure at Baylor University, Coach Taff served as the executive director of the American Football Coaches Association for two decades. He is known as a master motivator, speaker, and as a best-selling author. He is a member of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame and was inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame in 2001. He's also my dad. This podcast is an archive of his legacy, but also offers some fresh insights and conversations that we hope you enjoy. I'm Lane Pittman, and this is Grant Taft Beyond the Game, presented by the National Child ID Program. God put us on this earth with all sorts of equipment and opportunities, and he desires for us to live life and live it to its fullest. Living life to its fullest includes all of life's experiences, good, bad, loving, sharing, giving, feeling, desiring, achieving. All of those things are a part of what God wants us to experience and experience to the fullest. John 10.10, Jesus says, I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He didn't say, I'm come that you might just live life and go through it nonchalantly every day, bouncing off this wall or that wall. He said, I am come that you might really have a life, a life that is lived in the most powerful, profound way that you could live it, enjoying those things that human beings should feel and touch and under God's guidance live the kind of life that you should live. Live life and live it abundantly. There are certain techniques for doing anything. I'm involved in techniques on an athletic field. We teach techniques. Most of us involved in business or whatever we're doing also teach techniques. There are certain techniques that I believe very strongly in that you have to master if you want to live life and live it to its fullest. The first thing I think you have to do is gain control of your life and those qualities that make you up as a human being. Now, the physical aspects we can see. The mental aspects sometimes come out in various ways, in our language, our attitude, uh, even the way we conduct our business. There are spiritual qualities about us that are intangible, and those, too, need to be brought into submission and brought into our control. When we learn to control those qualities that God has given us, we can start to live the abundant life. Now, I'm a country boy, and I'm very proud of it. I come from Snyder, Texas, and I, I just love uh, people from the country. One of the things that I loved about West Texas, when I, uh, East Texas and Central Texas, when I came into this part of the country, was the people. I found no difference in that kind of people. And I'm proud to be associated with what I call country people and to come from that. They're not everyone that you associate with when you grow up that has all of the opportunities that you have. I've been blessed to be able to have a great job and a great family and to know people all over this country. One of my good friends that I visit with when I return to Snyder 
uh, is living an abundant life and has a great family. He's staying right there. He didn't go away to college, but he's right there in the area and doing well. In fact, uh, he's doing so well that he is the chief of the Ira Volunteer Fire Department. Now, Ira is about eight miles southwest of Snyder on the way to Big Spring. And if you've not ever been there, make sure that you keep your eyes wide open when you go through there because there's not much there. And he has also the Texaco service station there in Ira. And uh, being the chief, he really has control of a lot of things there with the volunteer fire department. They keep the fire truck behind his house. In fact, it's not a fire truck. It's a 1953 Chevrolet pickup, a red one. In fact, they painted red, hand-painted it. And on the side of it, they have listed Ira Volunteer Fire Department. Now, there are three other guys involved in the Ira Volunteer Fire Department. One runs a little grocery store. One has a pool hall. One lives two miles outside of Ira on a little farm. And this happened two summers ago. There was a fire at an oil well about eight or ten miles on southwest of Ira at the Exxon Corporation out there. And the first thing those folks did, they called Houston, Texas, to get Red Adair to come in and fight the fire. He was in Saudi Arabia, couldn't come. So the next thing they thought to do was to go ahead and put the information on KSNY Radio, that's a local radio station, and just make an announcement that the first volunteer fire department to get there and fight the fire and to put it out would get a bonus. And it just so happened that my friend, he's always in the right spot at the right time, he was sitting in the Texaco station, feet up on the desk, listening to a little CNW on KSNY Radio. Uh, that's country and western. And uh, he uh, heard on the radio the announcement concerning the fire. Well, he hit the alarm immediately, like any good fire chief would do. And uh, one of the guys comes running out of the pool hall, one of the grocery store, and one comes sliding up in his pickup out behind the uh, Texaco service station. They run around there, pull the tarp off the red pickup because they want to keep the dust and dirt off of it and jump in and take off. There's actually a lot of firefighting equipment on the pickup. There's a, two barrels, one filled with water, one filled with sand, and a blanket stuffed between the two barrels. Uh, they have to fight a lot of grass fires out there, and blankets are very handy for that. But anyway, they know where the fire is. They happen to be. Sometimes in life, you know, you're lucky you just happen to be in the right spot at the right time, and they just happen to be the closest of all the volunteer fire departments. There's one at Inadale, one at Wachtella, and one up at Knapp, too. But listen, the one in our is the closest of all of them. So my friends, they took off, and I mean they let the hammer down on that old red 53 Chevrolet pickup. They were doing at least 50 miles an hour. And I mean they were, they were moving through the countryside, dust just flowing up behind them. And the folks at Exxon, now they've backed off about 200 yards, and they, you know, they're waiting for the first volunteer fire department to get there. They're 200 yards away from the fire. They're going to stop, tell them what to do. Once they get the fire out, the valves to shut off and all that stuff. And over on the horizon, they see this cloud of dust moving towards them. And inside the cloud of dust, they see this red speck, and as it gets closer, they can tell that red speck is some sort of red pickup with three guys hanging on the outside, one guy driving, and I mean they're moving. Now, there are two big iron gates up at the top of the lease there, and over the top says Exxon lease and all of that stuff, and uh, when they topped that hill, they probably had that pickup up to 60 miles an hour. They were really moving. And the guys from Exxon see how fast they're moving. They're trying to wave them down so they can talk to them and tell them about what to do down at the fire. When they passed the folks from Exxon, there was nothing but a cloud of dust that just covered those folks from Exxon. They go on down the road 200 yards and run smack dab into the oil well fire, head on. They jump off that one throwing water, one pitching sand, another beating it with a blanket. And somehow, nobody knows to this day, miraculously, the fire goes out. Exxon people turn the right valves, get everything shut off, and they all back away from it, admiring the job. And the superintendent out there walked up to my friend. He said, I want to tell you something. I've been around the oil patch all my life, and I've seen a lot of people do a lot of courageous things, but I don't think I've ever seen anybody just go headlong into a situation like that, just jump right in there and get the job done. Under adverse circumstances, 
points of danger, said, I personally am very, very impressed with you and your crew. Of course, my friend stuck his chest out and feeling very proud about what they had done and the bragging that uh, was going on about he and the IRA Volunteer Fire Department. And the guy reached into his pocket, superintendent did, reached over and handed my friend a check. Said, here's a check for $1,500. And my friend said, Japan, I appreciate that. And the Exxon guy said, I'd like to ask you one question. My friend said, sure, what is it? Said, I'd like to know what you're going to do with that $1,500. My friend said, I'll tell you the first thing we're going to do. We're going to get the brakes fixed on that pickup. <laughs> well, uh, the point is actually this, that, you know, sometimes in life, you can just go completely out of control. You can run right into your objective, and somehow, you know, things will work out. That's, you know, that's uh, sometimes it happens. In those cases, they also could have gotten killed. They could have burned up the truck, and a lot of things could have happened to them. They were fortunate. 99.9% .9 of the time, that's not going to happen to you in a positive way when you go into the situation out of control. They were out of control. It worked out fine that time, but I sure wouldn't recommend it as a way to make a living. And that's true with us in our individual life. Sometimes we rock along and we just go headlong down the hill and bang into things and we're successful. But if you want to live an abundant life and you want to be successful in life, it is important to get control. Find out what you have inside of you, what your capabilities are. Understand them, develop them, and take control of your life. That is a base foundation for living a successful and abundant life. The second thing I think you have to do is approach life and approach it positively. There's a lot of talk in this old country right now about uh, positive things, and I think it comes at a very appropriate time. One of the things that is wrong with this nation is that we find too many things to be negative about. We find too many reasons why we can't get the job done instead of one or two reasons why we can get the job done. And it's important to take a stand as an a positive pro approach to life. It may surprise you, being a country boy as I am, that I love music of all kinds. I love classical music. I love poetry. And one of my great pleasures around Baylor University is every so often to slip into the Browning Armstrong Library. Now, if you've not been in that building, I recommend it to you wholeheartedly. It was built when buildings were really built. It is a magnificent, awesome structure that when you walk in, you sense the presence of greatness. Housed in that beautiful building are a great majority of the works of Robert Browning and Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And I love their work. I love their work because when I read it, I know and understand the great love that they felt for each other. Obviously, the love that they felt for mankind in sharing the talents and the ability that God had given them. One time, Robert Browning was having breakfast with his wife, who was never really well in all of the time that uh, Robert Browning knew her. She had brought with her from upstairs some pieces of paper folded, handwritten, and placed them at the edge of her plate. After breakfast, she walked away and turned and looked at Robert and said, Read those. If they're not any good, dispose of them. And Robert reached over and read what was to later become sonnets to the Portuguese, and in those words, she had said very simply and very beautiful about Robert Browning, my world, the face of my world, was changed when I heard the footsteps of your soul. That's a positive approach to life. 
an invalid, almost, dying at an early age, this young woman loved life and loved humanity and loved Robert Browning. And when I go into that library, I feel this sense of love. Robert Browning, I thought for many years, had written to her a poem that I love greatly. It comes out of Rabbi Ben Ezra, but I found out that he had written it two years after she had died, so it was not only probably in her memory, but to those that lived at those times uh, back uh, years ago and those of us that live today. Very beautifully, he said, Grow old with me, the best is yet to be, the last of life for which the first was made. Our times are in his hands, who saith, a whole I've planned. You chose but half. Trust God, see all, nor be afraid. Now you talk about a positive approach to life. Living life that tomorrow is the best day that's ever going to be. No matter how bad today was or how good today was, tomorrow is going to be better. The best is yet to be. I believe that with all my heart. I live life and live it abundantly, and one of the keys, and I guess one of the reasons that I like Robert Browning is his philosophy and my philosophy are one and the same. The best is yet to be. A couple of weeks ago, our pastor said those particular words. The best is yet to be for this church and this congregation, and, and in his life personally, the best is yet to be, I believe. You know, I think it's very important when you approach life and approach it in a positive manner that you understand the concepts of what Robert Browning was writing in Ezra, Rabbi Ben Ezra. First of all, he says, live life, live it abundantly, the best is yet to be, and understand that God has a plan and a purpose. Our times are in his hands, who saith the whole life plan, not just a part, not just the first half of our life, but God has a wonderful plan for all of our life the last day of our life as well as the first day of our life. And if we approach life knowing and understanding that God has a plan for our life, all sorts of things can happen to you. Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul says the same thing, but very emphatically, I beseech you, my brothers, by God's mercy, to offer yourself a living sacrifice. You must dedicate your heart as well as your mind. You must worship with your heart as well as your mind. You can no longer let yourself conform to the modern-day trends, but you must let your mind be remade, and thus your whole nature will transform. Then you will be able to discern or understand that which is perfect, that acceptable, God's will. God has a will and a purpose and a plan for every life. It's important, I believe, as we approach the understanding that God has a will and a purpose for our life, that we believe that when we set goals, we pray about our goals, we must work diligently toward those goals, and we must be tenacious in achieving those goals. Too many people give up too easily. Uh, in my business, you see that a lot of times, you know. You see folks uh, come as athletes that have all of these grandioso schemes and ideas of how great they're going to be and make so many yards rushing or so many yards many tackles and go on to the pro and make millions of dollars, and it fades and crumbles into a shadowy dream because they didn't have the tenaciousness to stay with their goals. When adversity strikes, when bad things happen, you stay with your goals if they are deep from your heart and planned as God would have you planned. As a young man on our campus, 
That means an awful lot to me personally because he is that kind of person. He is a committed Christian. He is dedicated to the principles of the Christian life. He is an extraordinarily smart young man, and he's a pretty darn good football player. But he's a man that stands high and tall as an individual that sticks to his goals and beliefs, amazingly so. Several years ago, about four I think it was now, Bill Young, who was on my staff at that time, came in and said, Coach, I found a young man that I would like to recommend to you that I'm really excited about. He's a winner. Uh, there are two or three things that you're really going to like about him. He has excellent speed, and more than anything else, he wants to play for Baylor University and he wants to play for Grant Taft. I said, hey, that's exciting because in this war of recruiting, anytime you can find a good one and you have any kind of an edge as to where they're wanting to come to your school or play for you personally or whatever it might be, that's a very important edge to have. I said, that excites me. That's very good. Tell me more about him. He said, Coach, he's extremely smart, almost a four-point student. He is very, very capable in all of the things that he does. He is an outstanding young man. I said, that's great, Bill. Uh, what's the holdup? I said, Coach, just want to know if you'll give him a scholarship. I said, well, certainly I want to look at some film, but tell me a little bit more about him. How big is he? He said, I, I was afraid you'd ask that. I said, uh-oh, how big is he? He said, well, Coach, he's five foot six and weighs 150 pounds. I said, he wants to play quarterback for Baylor University and the people that we have to play in the next three or four years, Georgia, Kentucky, Michigan, Ohio State, you name it, and we play him? He said, yes, sir. I said, I'll tell you right now. If you think he can play defensive back, I'll give him a scholarship, but I'm not giving a scholarship to a five foot six, 150-pound quarterback because you can't win in the competition that we have to play. He said, yes, sir. I don't think he'll play defensive back. He has his heart set on playing offense for you and Baylor University. I said, well, you tell him that I'll make that offer and find out what happened. Came back uh, about a week later, said, Coach, I talked to the young man. He said he wants to play for you more than anything else in this world. He wants to play for Baylor University, but he also wants to play offense, and he believes he can play offense. I said, well, that's fine, but you tell him that I'm not giving quarterback scholarships to a five foot six, 150-pound quarterback, and that's the way it is. He said, yes, sir. Two weeks later, we were in our offices on a Saturday morning in a recruiting weekend. We had players in. This particular young man had gone to Texas Tech to go for a recruiting weekend. About 3.30 in the afternoon, the telephone rang in Bill Young's office, and he walked down the hall to my office and said, Coach, a uh, young man from Dallas, Texas is out in Lubbock. They just offered him a scholarship. He excused himself from the coach's office, walked down to a pay telephone. He's now on the phone in my office, and he wants to know if you've changed your mind that his goal and his desire is to play for Baylor University and you. Will you take it? I said, I would not two weeks ago, and I will not today. If he wants to play defense, I'll take it. I said, no, Coach, he wants to play offense. I said, I, I can't take it. The young man accepted a scholarship to Texas Tech. And there burned inside of this young man and burns to this day a desire to stay with his goals, to reach his goals. And though, no matter what obstacle comes, this young man lost his father at a very early age. He does not have the financial backing or maybe the advice that many of us have from parents or fathers. And this young man, in that year at Texas Tech, there crystallized in his life the desire to reach his goals. He dropped out of Texas Tech, first of all gaining a release from Texas Tech, scholarship release, then making application to the Southwest Conference. He received a positive vote from all nine conference members, which is almost impossible, particularly at the time that he did it. And he got it. He worked for a full year. And a year ago, last August, my secretary walked in and said, there's a young man I'd like to see you. I said, fine, send him in. 
I looked up, recognized the young man. I thought he was passing through town going back to Lubbock. I said, how you doing? He said, I'm doing fine, coach. I said, where are you heading? He said, I'm heading here. I said, uh, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to school here? He said, yes, sir. I said, well, that's great. He said, I want to play football for you in Baylor University. I said, well, that's impossible because, uh, first of all, you'd have to have a release from Texas Tech. He said, yes, sir, I understand that. I have that. I said, well, I'm sure you don't realize this, but you'd have to have a positive vote from all nine conference schools, and that just is not going to happen. He said, yes, sir, I already have that. I said, well, I didn't give you a scholarship, you know, when you got out of uh, high school, and I certainly am not going to give you a scholarship now, and uh, it's fairly expensive here, so I'm sure you won't be able to afford coming here. And he said, no, sir, I've worked for a whole year. I have the money. All I'd like to know, Coach, is would you give me a chance to be a part of this program, to play for Baylor University, and to play for you? I said, what can I say? Of course, I will be happy to give you a chance. All of that fall, he worked very hard as a scout team man, impressed me. Academically, he rose to one of our top scholar athletes on campus. And when spring training came around, I granted his request to participate as a quarterback. He does not throw the ball very well. He is not very tall. And uh, he does not do some things that we wanted to do very well at that time. He was a fourth-team quarterback. It was not possible for him to gain a scholarship there. So I called him in and I said, look, I like what I see. I like your attitude. I like your speed. I like you. And I'm going to move you to defensive back, and I'm going to give you a full scholarship. He said, boy, Coach, you don't know what that means to me. I just, I feel so good about you feeling that I can play for Baylor University, and I really appreciate that. But, Coach, I believe I can play offense for Baylor University. <laughs> and if I have to pay my way another year and you'll let me stay offensively, I'll do it. I said, I'll tell you one thing, friend. You're driving me up a wall, and I'm going <laughs> to give you a scholarship, and I'm going to let you stay on the offensive field. We started last fall, and the young man was a third-team running back, still not very big, but very quick and very strong and very smart and very heady and very much a young winner. When we lost Greg Hawthorne in the third game of the season, we were playing Houston the next day or the next week, and I had moved this young man up to the backup running back, and during the ball game, we had uh, one of our running backs injured, and he had to play and made 80-some-odd yards in the ball game. Impressed me very much with his presence on the field and his ability to get the job done. And as we approached the end of the season when many bad things had happened to us, and particularly as we had lost to Rice University, there, of course, came a realization to me that we had to make some changes in some areas in order to beat the University of Texas, who was coming in ninth ranked. One of the changes we made was to move this young man from a running back to quarterback. And, of course, now you know who he is, and... You know that history was made on that day as Mickey Elam led us to a very convincing victory. 28-0 to zero at half, 38-14 to 14 at the end of the game, most points ever scored by Baylor against a Texas team. The third time in a row that we had defeated Texas in this stadium. And the young man was tremendously responsible for a portion of that victory. And one of the things that stood out in my mind as we walked off the field that day was the tenacity of his desire to stay with that in which he believed. I could not deter him. Bad things could not deter him. Adversity, odds, people telling him it was impossible to do did not deter him. And one of the things that I feel very strongly about, and Mickey does too, the best is yet to be. He's been elected one of our co-captains. I don't know if he'll be our starter, but I'll tell you one thing. He'll play a lot of ball and he'll make a contribution, and more importantly than his contribution to this team, as this young man goes through life, those traits of persistent endurance will put him instead 
It's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be victories and Sports Illustrated Player of the Week. There'll be tough times, but I'll rest you assured that Mickey Elam will live life and live it to the fullest. The best is yet to be. Our times are in his hands, who saith, a whole I plan. Another area of very important wording to me by Robert Browning is the phrase that simply says, Trust God, see all, nor be afraid. You cannot, under any stretch of the imagination, live life and live it abundantly if you're afraid of life. And the key to not being afraid of life is trusting God. Trusting God is actually saying you believe God. You believe in what he's saying to you through your heart. You have faith in God. You develop the characteristic of faith in your life, and it will unleash God's power in your life. It is a fantastically powerful force in human life. Robert Browning said it very clearly. Trust God. See all. It'll all begin to clear up to you if you just put your trust in God, and then you don't have to be afraid of anything. I do not fear the 1979 football season. I look forward to it. I do not fear any form of life. First of all, because of my trust in God and in his son Jesus Christ, the ultimate victory is mine. If I never win another football game, victory is assured to me through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. It's assured. I believe it. People say to me, well, coach, how do you believe in a God you can't see? Well, I tell you, I see enough of him to believe in him. An analogy would be this. I've been to the coast. I've been to the east coast, the west coast. I've been to the Mediterranean Ocean, and I've had my hands and my feet in the ocean. I believe in the ocean. But I don't know all there is to know about the ocean. It's deep. And there are a lot of things down there that I don't know and I don't understand. But I believe in it. And I believe in God. And I believe it's important if you want to live life and live it to its fullest, you do likewise. Jesus, through his many miracles, time and time again, said to those individuals, by your faith, this has happened. Paul, I believe, in writing in Hebrews, in the 11th chapter, pointed out to all of us, and particularly to those that he was writing to that had changed their faith and they had gone through some tough times, and he was really reemphasizing the importance to them of their faith. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And over and over in the chapter again and again he says, By faith, by faith Abel, by faith Enoch, by faith Noah, by faith Abraham, by faith Sarah, and on and on and on. Moses, the Passover. And he finally says, And what more shall I say? What else can I say? He said, I could go on and talk about all of the prophets and the hundreds of those, but what can I say except by faith? Use faith as a powerful instrument in your life. When I think of historical events in human involvement where faith has been the key, it inspires me. And there are hundreds and yes, thousands of them. There are thousands in everyday life, not only in way past historical life. As a father, one that really ministers to my heart and mind is the story of Abraham. We were in Israel this last spring, and I went into the Dome of the Rock 
And this is the historical, traditional spot where Abraham was to lay down the life of his son. And I stood there and looked at that rock, and I thought about my daughters, who I love more than life itself. When I think of them, there wells up inside of me this great love. I just see them walking by, and my eyes feast on them. I love them so much. So I understood the deep hurt, the deep sense of trust that Abraham had in God when God told him to take his son Isaac and lay him on an altar and sacrifice him. And Abraham went through it, trusting God. I believe he believed that God would raise him from the dead, but he was going to carry through with God's wording to him. That's impressive to me. He raised the knife. He was stopped. But that didn't stop his faith. And because of that faith, he was honored by not only his nation of people, but others. A man who trusted God. There was a young man in modern times, if you call 18 and 73 modern. This young man had it all going. He had a wonderful wife and four baby daughters. As they grew and his business prospered in the Chicago area, he praised God daily that God could be so wonderful to him and give him so much. And he enjoyed life and he lived it abundantly. Then there started a series of events that not only changed this man's life, but it tested him in a very, very powerful way. Chicago burned. His business was destroyed. All of his holdings gone up in smoke. Being a committed, dedicated Christian, he and his wife threw themselves into helping others immediately. And for month after month, they gave of themselves their time and what money they had left in a Christian action. Finally, near exhaustion, a doctor came and said to this young man, H.G. Spafford, that he and his wife and their children must get away from Chicago. They must have rest to take what they had and to go on a cruise to get away and rejuvenate their life. And Mr. Spafford did. He went to New York City, bought passage on a ship for his wife and his four daughters, and of course for himself. And just before the ship was to leave, he was called that he must return to Chicago. There was a possibility that he might recoup some of his losses. So he sent his family on, went back to Chicago, on the high seas, out on the Atlantic, the ship was struck by another ship, broken in half. The wife and the four baby daughters were thrown into the cold Atlantic, hanging on to a piece of floating debris. The mother watched as each one of the four children lost their grip and slipped under the water to a watery death. She was picked up and carried to Wales. Two weeks later, she finally sent a message to her husband, and it stated, Save alone, very clearly. The children were gone. Mr. Spafford went to England and met his wife and in loving care tried to help her. And in all that time, feeling the hurt and the anguish, it's almost beyond comprehension to have that happen to an individual and the first thing you say is, hey, he's going to question his faith. But this man is an inspiration to us all because, as Bill McGraw would know and those in the choir, he wrote, a wonderful song. The words go like this. 
when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. A man has to have an abounding presence of faith to trust God. It's easy to trust God when things are going well, but to trust God when things are bad. That's the essence of trust, the essence of faith, the essence of belief. There's a great psychologist in America a few years ago that was actually the father of American psychology, William Jones. He said, in any project, the important factor is your belief. Without belief, there is no successful outcome. Ralph Waldo Emerson said it. Belief is absolutely necessary. No accomplishment, no assistant, no training will take the place of belief. If you want to live and live life to its fullest and live it abundantly, you utilize that force and that power that God has given you to believe. Jesus said it, if you can believe, all things are possible if you believe. Believe in yourself. Believe in those around you. And have the kind of faith in God that would really allow you to face the kind of tragedies that Mr. Spofford faced and live life and live it abundantly. Jesus died on a cross. Do you believe it? Jesus was sent by his father who saved Abraham from sacrificing his son. God sacrificed Jesus that you and I might have everlasting life. Do you believe it? If you believe it, you need to put action to your belief. As Mickey Elam had a belief in his goals, he put action to them. If you believe in God, if you believe in his son Jesus Christ, it is imperative that you put action to it. This is Grant Taft. Thank you for joining us. Now, go make a difference beyond the game.